0: Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur podcast. In this episode, we'll hear from the people behind the creation of a brand that aimed to disrupt a highly competitive market, the sportswear industry. I'm producer Dan, and I'm here for the first time with not one, but two entrepreneurs. Firstly, we have the event for entrepreneur himself, Mr. Roger Whittle. How are you, Dodge? Very good, mate. Welcome back. Thank you. Looking forward to this. Me too. And finally, it's a welcome return to these parts, the creative genius, Stephanie Essex. Hey, Dan. How are you? Very good. Been a while.
2: It has, all, about a year, I think, since I've been in this office.
1: And Now, before we do get into the podcast itself, uh, it's worth noting that episodes one and four of this podcast are sort of spiritual prequels to this episode. They covered Dodge's journey to becoming a successful festival owner, and they may add a bit of context to what we're about to discuss today. So if you haven't already listened to episode one and four, uh, go back and check them out. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe and leave us a cheeky five star review while you're at it. Well, that's the housekeeping over. So let's get into it. Let's start with Steph. We've heard Dodge's journey up until creating and delivering Bournemouth Sevens. When and how did your paths cross?
2: So I needed to find uh, a placement at university. I was doing civil and architectural engineering uh, at Bath University. did um, wasn't actually enjoying it that much, but managed to blag a placement at a sports. Company uh, somehow, I think I, I blagged that I was going to build sports stadiums or something, which was obviously a complete lie, and uh, <laughs> made my way to to, to Bournemouth. I knew uh, Sophie Christie, who obviously was uh, was working for for Dodge at the time, um, and she said, "Do you want to come on board and help run uh, a project called Go Play Netball?" I was like, "Yeah, done. Placement ticked." Um, but as i got into it and obviously you know met roger i think i came down one day for a, roger for a, roger <laughs> roger <laughs> met dodge um came down one That's day a first day. i know it was very very important <laughs> um came down one day for an interview i thought i was going to um some big swanky offices because the website was at the time was diamond sports events had all these amazing um my office photos I was like this is a big day I'm going to go for a, an interview I took a bag of donuts for all the staff um and I I rang uh, Sophie just before I was about to arrive and said you know is there a car parking space reserved for me and she said oh just you just park on the road and I was like, okay yeah uh, yeah, sure. she's like, oh yeah, it's a re- residential. And then I realized I was turning up at Roger's house and the interview was actually in his, his garage. Um, so that was all good fun. And I think uh, Roger, pop- Dodge again, <laughs> popped down uh, for the interview. and pretty much said, uh, can you get me a hold of uh, a massive netball database? And I, I didn't really know what he meant, but I said, yes. And he said, yeah, great, come on board. Um, <laughs> so that's how I, I met Dodge and uh, you know, started uh, working, getting involved with Bournemouth Sevens, was just fascinated by this whole entrepreneurial environment, you know, it was it was on my wavelength, and I ha- hadn't been in that environment before. Being at uni, it was quite stiff and starchy and boring. Um, but this was a really dynamic environment. You know, pinging each other on Blackberries at the time. I think that was one of the first things I did when I started working for Dodge. I was like, I need to get a Blackberry. They're all on Blackberries, um, and yeah, that, that was an error because then it didn't stop. Any other way of contacting me all hours of the day. Um, but just really got got into the mix then, and that's how I I started working for Dodge. Mm.
1: And did you have a sports background as well?
2: Yeah, so I um I was part of the, the England Netball setup. I was playing Super League netball over in Bath, uh for, for Bath and for Celtic Dragons um over in Cardiff. Um was part of the England under 21 setup. There was a a mass migration of us. We all went down to Bath basically to prepare for the, the World uh, Netball Youth Cup. Um so that was my background, um, and to tick a box going to university and keep my parents happy. I said, Yeah, I'll do a an engineering degree, but ultimately I was I was there to play netball, so that was, that was my passion, and always played sport at school um, wherever I could, even if it was you know football with with all the lads. Um, just just yeah, was a bit of a natural sportswoman, a bit like Dodge being a natural sportsman.
1: Nice, and Dodge. What did you see in Steph that made you think I want to get her on board?
0: Passion, hunger, excitement. She was like a coiled spring, if I remember rightly. This is the year two, This is like 2010 and I just saw this young girl come in who was just couldn't believe that she was entering into like an entrepreneurial sports world. Um, and I could see that she was ticking boxes by going to university, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just saw this sparkle in her eye that she, just give her something and she'll succeed. And that's what really stood out to me. And that's when, you know, she was there on a placement and that's when I was like, you can't go back to university. When you finished your placement, when she was about to go back, I said, "Steph, you are—you have got something. You've got something special." So I made her an offer to take a to not go back to university, which she had a long think about, and then she came back and went, "I'm on board." Was that a hard decision, Steph?
2: Yeah. Well, um, what Dodge doesn't know is I deferred for a year, so <laughs> I, uh, I I gave myself a year's trial. I didn't know that. Bit. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, yeah, yeah, don't. I'm on board. Just <laughs> park in that. But no, I I ended up just staying and making the decision long term that um, this was an opportunity that doesn't come around often. And um, if I ever wanted to go back and complete, you know, that that masters at university, it would always be there. But did I really want to be building bridges and you know dealing with concrete and steel every day? No. So um, it was a, a an opportunity that that I grabbed with both hands.
1: And obviously, you're on board now. But where did the seed and the idea of cracking into the sportswear world come from?
0: It, it was Steph and I. It was um, in 2010. Obviously, we we had the Bournemouth Sevens Festival, which had been running two years. Steph come on board in 2010, working out of the, a very cold garage.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I got chill one year. <laughs> um, and we didn't have
0: mu- we didn't have money back then to really. Take people on board and, off and have offices, et etc, so it was, it, was a, it was an idea, obviously Steph and I were thinking and saying, why don't we create a sportswear brand, but it was on the back of, it was on the back of a company coming to visit us, wasn't it in 2010? It was a company called Stash Sportswear
2: wanting you to invest
0: that's right. they said, "Dodge, can we uh, meet up?" and I said, "No problem, come come to my house, and we'll have a meeting and Steph and I were in the meeting, and they basically said, i said, you know i, I laid it on and said well, what, what do you want from us?" Um, they obviously saw we had Bournemouth Sevens Festival and they saw an angle Then They said, well, can you invest 70 grand and we'll give you some shares within the company? And I looked at their figures and sums and business model and Steph and I were bouncing back and forward in our minds, looking at each other in this meeting. When they left, we thought, there's no business model there for the way they're doing it. So we decided, why don't we set up our own sportswear brand? And it sort of the idea come from there really, didn't
2: it? Yeah, it did. And I think um, Dodge said to me, because uh, I was teaching myself how to graphic design at the time, Um, and said, uh, you know, Essex, can you, uh, can you knock up some sportswear designs? And, uh, yeah, if you can have them done in the next couple of weeks, then, uh, yeah, we'll launch in, yeah, let's say, give ourselves two months, three months. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) at the time I, you know, (laughs) I, I I taught myself everything, had it, had it done, but then we realized it was going to take a bit longer and actually took two, two years rather than two months, but, um, they were perhaps two years of absolute importance. Um, the research we did was pretty, uh pretty ruthless in terms yeah. of, you know, our competitors, what what was the business model of the industry mm. um, and where was the gap? How are we going to kind of um, disrupt this sportswear market that perhaps, you know, historically didn't have huge success in terms of creating, you know, profitable business models. We found from, you know, speaking to our competitors, people were um, obsessed by turnover, which um, for Dodge was a bit alien because, you know, he's... As a businessman he's all focused on the bottom line and turnover is great but ultimately it's what you make at the end of the day that's important so um yeah uh, a, lot, a lot a lot of research in those two years for mm. sure
0: we had no business plan we had no business plan we just we just trusted our gut and we also knew that we did so much homework research 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 and our competitors so much you know, to the point that I'd be phoning competitors three, four times a day under different names and on loudspeaker and Steph would be there writing notes and yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. You know? And
2: uh, it was, we also found it quite surprising how much competitors were just willing to divulge over the phone yeah. to a complete stranger. Yeah. It was,
0: it was mind-blowing. Wasn't mind-blowing. It? Yeah, mind-blowing. And then then when they were divulging, I was like,
2: oh, right, okay, so how much were you turning
0: over uh, last month and how much did you turn over last year? And the people who are working for the owners were giving us this information. This was building up the most amazing picture in our minds, wasn't it? Yeah. It really was. And, and it was lovely to be phoning up and building this picture. And, and we, knew we, had, we knew we saw weaknesses. In any business that I've done and we've done over the years, if you've, you know, you haven't got to reinvent the wheel. You know, it's about finding weaknesses in businesses. Mm-hmm. And we found a lot, a lot of weaknesses in the teamware industry. And you've got to remember in 2010, when we came up with the idea, The industry really properly had only been going since 1996, so a good 14 years. And they were all competing against each other. It was like a war between them, whether, you know, whether they were who's going to win what, what, you know, university deals or who's going to go to a rugby club and get the whole rugby club deal. And they were just fighting with each other. We took a step back and thought, how can we create a digital business? How can we really shake up this industry big time? And we came up with an idea of creating a digital business where we had no salespeople on the road. And that was the key. One of the keys. The other key was to not hold any stock. So there was lots of we spent two years of doing research and development, of looking at factories, of creating our brand, of creating the website, of planning the video shoot and photo shoot of what celebrities were going to get on board. Um, And it just was a, a magical journey. Hmm.
2: well I think initially the the competitor brands they were you know sourcing from China, so we thought right okay that's what you do you go source from China and uh we we found a couple of English guys didn't we that that had access to a a factory in China
0: the two two fat blokes from Devon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I definitely remember those two jeez yeah they're gonna get they're gonna get talked about
2: and uh very naively just thought yep seem seem like great guys let's team up with them they can be our people on the ground in China source um the right factory for us um, and yeah it turned out to be a couple of con men didn't they really it was a it was
0: yeah it was a weird it was a weird one it was a weird one i don't think i don't think the word con men is the right word when they when we initially met them they were making kit for their local rugby club in devon but they lived in china And we were very new to the business and they said, we can get all your garments made for you. We can get them all designed. We can get um, all the samples to you. We can do everything you need to be done to create a sportswear brand. So at the time, it was early days and we're like, "Mm, I'm in Naren, I'm in Naren, I'm in Naren. And we're still learning. Got to a point where they said, well, we've spoken to the factory. We need you. The factory will not do anything until you send us 70 grand. So we held off and we held off and we held off and we didn't send them any money. And in the end, they said, we sent them the money. And in, then they got the money and said, and then a month later, they said, oh, sorry, the factory have got the money. They passed the money onto the factory. The two fat guys from Devon who lived in China come back to us and said, sorry, the uh, factory's keeping your money. We were like, you what? Mm-hmm. I said, well, why give us the factory name? They would never give us the factory name. All we knew, there was a lady there called Katie mm-hmm. who was the factory owner. So anyway, it got to a point where we were arguing. It got, we were arguing a lot over the phone. They were ignoring us. And we were like, oh, my God, they've got our 70 grand.
1: And they didn't give you any reason why the factory weren't giving the money back or anything like that. They just...
0: They said, sorry, you've been mucking the factory around too long. It's gone on too long. You, they're not giving you the money back. But they wouldn't give us the factory's name. Yeah. So you couldn't negotiate with the factory. You couldn't negotiate with the factory thinking, hold on, I can smell a rat here. So that's when it all kicked off, and um, all we knew it was a it was the main factory area in China where they do all the manufacturing, clothes manufacturing, etc. For, for around the world. All we knew was a woman called Katie. What would you do? Don't speak English. Time zones all over the place. A woman called Katie. Right, Google, my best friend, Fleur and I, my wife, went through all the factories. I think we got like 120 factory numbers up every day for two weeks, three weeks, ringing up every factory in that main area in China. Hi, is Katie there, please? No, she's not here. We don't know her, Katie. Literally went on about 70-odd calls after two weeks, all of a sudden, uh, repeating myself, hello, is Katie there, please? And this guy, and I could hear dogs in the background barking, and I could hear the machinery working, and it was... It was just this feeling that just come across me. And he called out for Katie and Katie came to the phone. I went, oh, my God, Katie, please tell me you're Katie. And, you know, two guys called John from England who live in China and they've given you 70 grand of ours. And she went, yes, I know, John, the two Johns from Devon. I was like, oh, my God, stay where you are. What is your mobile number now? Give me your email address now. So I don't lose this phone call. Anyway, we found this woman called Katie. Do you remember?
2: Yeah, and she said she had received no money.
0: Yeah, she received no money whatsoever and she was in shock and it was just a, such a relief to find that at the time. So did that get resolved? It got resolved because we got proof from her that she'd not received any money. We got the lawyers onto the two guys from Devon who lived in China. We we married it all up. It went to uh, out-of-court settlement and then we got our money back. But what I'm talking serious pressure back then that was, wasn't it? Yeah. Having to deal with that while creating a brand in the first...
2: Well, and also, Bournemouth 7s was still in its infancy, so there was still financial pressures from Bournemouth 7s because, you know, that was still a place where it was growing, investment needed to, to keep being put back in to yeah. make it bigger. So, uh, there, yeah, a lot of um, financial pressures around that time, not just in creating 5 for 10, yeah. but with everything, everything else going
0: on. Everything going on, on. and... Um... Wild. When you look back and think, you know, you're building up a festival and I think people who listen to episode one and four will hear what we went through. You know, two years later, we're launching and thinking about doing a sportswear brand to to, to diversify. But we saw the gap in the market that what a great way to create a sports brand is to dovetail and jump on the back of a festival. We had 400 teams coming. You Know to the festival, so it really made sense for us to really move this brand forward. But
2: we would managed to resolve that, and it was almost a bit like, right, okay, let's take two, let's go again. Let's go again, <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it
0: was. And then it was about finding what factories we can use, where in the world. Um, and we saw that obviously our competitors are all using China, and the business model there was our competitors were using China, and it took 12 weeks for people to order. You know, this was team wear, so imagine you're a rugby club and you want. 100 shirts, shorts and socks, 100 tracksuits, 100 training tops, all for the, for the adults. And then you want another 400 for the kids. You know, these, these were big deals. Um, but the rugby clubs have been used to the this, this, this same old way for the last 14, 15 years before we come onto the market. And that was the, it's going to take 12 weeks. You're not going to get your kit landed in, on the, on ready for your first game in September. It might land in, in your third or fourth game. We were there to disrupt the market, to make sure we found a factory. We found our factory in Lithuania that did a four week land on your door. And all of a sudden that was a game changer, wasn't mm.
2: it? Yeah, it was almost like quite surprising really that these teams and clubs were happy to accept a 12 week turnaround time, even though that they knew that it wasn't even gonna land in 12 weeks, it was probably gonna be more like 16 weeks. And they, when we spoke to them like, yeah, well it's just, just how it is. Um, And that kind of links back into, because we hadn't, you know, had any experience in in the sportswear industry, um, we always, you know, Dodge and I always say that being naive actually turned out to be our biggest advantage. Um, So when we get this information, we're going 12 weeks now I'm thinking I'm probably not even the same weight in 12 weeks, let alone, you know, (laughs) when my stuff arrives, probably not going to fit me. (laughs) so when we managed to find this factory in Europe with four weeks, we just realized that was, that was one of our angles. That was going to be one of yeah. our USPs. Yeah.
0: But that was interesting trying to get that factory as well, because that took a lot of hard graft. They're not interested in the startup. These factories have been going for many, many years. But we identified that this guy was English speaking in this Lithuanian factory, and we knew that's the one we needed. But he wasn't interested for two or three months. We were on his case. What's happening and, and getting on his case and texting and speaking. And he just was interested, but he wasn't interested. But he then saw how professional we were. And then he was like, OK, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And that was a, a match made in heaven for both parties, wasn't
2: it? Yeah. Yeah, they were um, brilliant. Absolutely fantastic.
0: So a lot went on in 2010 and 2011.
1: You said, Steph, that uh, naivety helped you out in in certain circumstances and, and obviously maybe led to some of the USPs that you offered eventually. Do you think? Naivety had any negative effects on the the business as a whole, or do you think it was mostly positive?
0: I guess parting with seventy grand to a, a Chinese factory, or so-called Chinese factory, with a with a middleman, that was that was naivety. But we were putting ourselves under pressure. We thought this was the this was the route, so we were going along with it for a very short period of time. It, you know, we made very quick decisions, um, and it gave us time. You know, it, that was a that was a godsend, really, because it made you realise this isn't the route. Yeah. this is definitely not the route because one they don't speak english two it's different time zones three you're different dealing with different currencies it just all went on and mm. on all these things we realized and that was
2: yeah you know. i was going to say and we also i think realized that was a bit of a moment of okay if we're going to do this we need to do it with our mindsets and, and not follow the traditional models and the first thing we need to do is find out all of the mistakes that everyone else makes so Dodge got in contact with uh, a chap called Bill Newton, who uh, was one of the guys that set up Cougar, uh, probably guy. the original rugby brand. Yeah. Um, and we spent a couple of days with him, basically just, you know, getting all this information from him, just working with him, getting his advice, um, you know, and, and, and Dodge and I will say that time with him probably saved us. Hundreds of thousands of hundreds pounds. Hundreds of
0: thousands. And we, you know, a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, old uh, Leicester Tigers an England player Leon Lloyd, he used to wear an arm guard on the wing for Leicester with Cougar written on it. And back then, Cougar was the biggest rugby brand. And he put me in contact with Bill Newton. Bill Newton came down. We we, we paid him five hundred quid for the day for consultancy. He drove down from Manchester down to Bournemouth. At best, five hundred quid we've ever spent. Yep. We had two days with him. Literally saved us a fortune. Wow. And he and a proper, proper good bloke. Knowledge shared. Knowledge shared. But he knew from the old way. His business model was going to China and buying hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of stock. We learned that we don't want to hold any stock. We, Our business was a purely digital online business that's going to shake up this industry. And that was the real turning point, wasn't it? Yeah. But you had to get on that dip. You had to get on that low to rise back up. And that low was the China thing, what was going on. But for us to rise back up and and it was it was a it was a stressful experience, but it was the, the experience that was a game changer.
2: Yeah, I
0: agree.
1: Mm. With Bournemouth Sevens and with other things that you've launched, dodge you you kind of tend to think of the brand as a whole before you get cracking with the with the logistics of it. Was that the same with Viper Ten? Did you have a brand in place early doors, or was that something that happened over the two years?
0: Our, go back to r and d, but Steph and I were, were both creative. Both got great, great creative minds. Steph's obviously a wonderful designer as well as a creative mind and a businesswoman. So that was the bit that we really enjoyed, wasn't it? We were studying every the most amazing websites in the United States, every NFL, NBA, whatever it may be, because they were the pioneers. They were, they were 10, they were 20 years ahead of everything in, in England, yeah. weren't they? And we are getting all the best bits from all of their websites, and Nike website and Puma website and Under Armour. And we created our own. Viper Ten website that was all singing and dancing.
2: Yeah, and it's it's worth. This happened over a period of time, but we were relentless in terms of, you know, Saturday morning, Sunday nights. You know, Dodge and I back and forth. Of, have you seen this? Have you seen this? I like this product page. Can you see what they've done there with this this Zoom feature? These guys have got videos for for this part of their website, and it was during that research and just trying to study everything out there that we we saw that Nike had this concept, this Nike ID concept. And something kind of clicked, and we thought, yes. "What about the this ID concept where you create your own, and it can be whilst you know the the office is closed that you can be doing it in the middle of the night. The customer can be where they can go online, select their team design, whether it be you know a rugby kit, a, a netball dress, whatever, add their own team colours, um, you know, get a quote for for their numbers, and be able to get that quote on the spot mm-hmm. was." A game changer, because yeah. they could do it at training, yeah. with their mates without even needing the energy of someone in the Viper ten team. um and then at that point, we obviously capture their email, yep. capture their contact details yep. um, and can then make contact with them and and hopefully you know close the sale. yeah
0: because it's a very simple model. You go from a cold lead to a warm lead to a hot lead. The cold lead, they see the you know the 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 three d kit designer that we created. And that was just like Nike ID, where you could design your own trainers online. It had been going around for 20 years. but No one was doing it with Kit at a really mm. high level. Well,
1: the good thing about that is people like to play around. And like Nike ID works really well because it's a data capture thing where yeah. people are playing around. But in order to do so, you have to give them your details. And then, therefore, they're now a sales lead, basically. Mm. And is that how you did it with Viper 10? You kind of did you have to have a data capture process in it, order it, to it, design
0: it, a kit? It's very important to capture the data. But the the beauty of what we created was they went through a whole whole process of designing their kits online for their whole club. Different colors, different logos, different branding, da, 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 all online. And all of a sudden at the end they said, do you want a, do you want a, uh, an estimate for how much it's going to cost you? Obviously everyone wants an estimate instantly that they press a button. But they had to put in their email before. They put the email in before, we get their email captured, then they get their price. Then we've got their contact details, they go and... Get in contact over the next day and say we can do a, a m- even better designs for you. And also we got hoodies, and also we got training tops and track suits, all bespoke to you, all designed how you want it. And that was really refreshing for the market, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, and I think also in terms of business model, what we'd seen as well was um, the the designing of the team kits for you know in-house designers is is very labour intensive. So why not cut out the first part, which is them deciding what they like, what they don't like, what colours let them do that themselves on their own time. So when the information comes to you, the team's probably got a pretty good idea of the design that they like and the colors that they want, which makes it a very streamlined process then for the design team saying, great, thank you very much. If I'll just, I'll grab your logo as well and I'll add that. Um, so we we really managed to streamline that part of the process as well, because we found it quite interesting that designers of you know traditional sportswear brands could spend hours creating all these designs for teams and they would just, you know, take them and go to another brand. Yeah. Now, in any other industry, you don't get someone to design something for you and not use it for free. If you're going to get a website designed, you, you, you need to pay for concepts. Um, so that again, going back to our naivety and business mindset of going, well, you can't just keep churning stuff out for free. You're going to lose money pretty quickly. So the kit designer was a fantastic way of going, right, let's fast track this process.
1: Did you find that the traditional old school brands started copying the kit designer? Did that happen?
0: Yeah, they try to. But when you're when you're a pioneer and you're the you are the best out there at the time, it's very hard to follow. It's very it's easy to copy, but people know if someone's copying straight away. And listen, business everyone's copying everyone. You know, no one's reinventing the wheel here. <laughs> you know, everyone's copying and tweaking and finding weaknesses in business to improve their own business. It's more
1: of a gauge of that you've done something good and you've done something successful that people are noticing, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, we just took things to the next level. You know, we, the, 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 the kit designers out there were coming about and we, we, take, we were constantly pushing boundaries to the next level that we were always looking the best. And, you know, what we identified with this is that our competitors w- would have three or four sales staff on the road. One salesman covering the north of England, the south of England, Wales, and the Midlands. You know, before you know it, it, a car, petrol, a telephone, and that salesman's wages, you might be looking at 50 grand all in. Well, that salesman's got to go and turn over half a million quid to pay for himself. It just didn't make sense in our eyes. Mm. It really didn't make sense. So we made sure we created a digital business model that people could design online. And if they wanted samples, they would pay... I can't remember it was back then. 80 quid, was it? Yeah, around that. 80 quid. So they've given us commitment and we'd send the samples out to them. If they kept the samples, we keep their money. If they send the samples back, they get their money back. So it just it's cut out an absolute fortune for us and it was very streamlined.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to your your point there about obviously other brands, you know, duplicating and, and so forth. It, it initially, I think uh, perhaps as as one of the designers, you know, I took it quite personally and and got very frustrated by it. But over time, um I just thought, you know, if you, if you want to go with the other brand who's selling you that shirt three pounds cheaper for something that's much, much poorer quality, um, then best of luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But that was, we weren't, but the beauty of it, we, we, weren't, we weren't fighting. We didn't see business as a war. We let the other companies who were at, at war with each other because they had salesmen on the road and it's all about turnover for them, you know, but it, turnovers for vanity. You know, and we weren't interested in the turnover. We were interested in making a profitable business that could be that could be packaged up one day.
1: And it helps when you've got confidence in your product.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, we actually went through a couple of years where we we didn't tender. Um, so we'd get in- invitations to tender from you know lots of universities, uh, different l- large rugby clubs, and for for a couple of years our standard reply was: um, we actually don't tender. Here are our prices. You can see all the designs on our website. If you if you want to work with a fantastic brand and uh, you know and have a proper pr- partnership, then uh, we'd love to work with you. But we're not going to get into a bidding war. Yeah, do loads and loads of work, loads and loads of designs for you to turn to the back page and see uh, what what the bottom number is because yeah. it doesn't capture um, all the other things that go on when you're ordering from a from yeah. a teamwear brand.
0: And we made sure our customer service was ten out of ten. You know, feedback was fuel for us. That was our number one customer service. If you make your customer service good and you build great relationships, you've got a good, You'll have a, and you've got a good brand, you'll have a good business. You know, and, and, and we we started small and we thought big and we scaled quickly.
1: And how, when it comes to the launch of it, how did you kind of lead up to that and how did the launch itself go? What was the, what was the thinking behind that process?
0: They were good days god these are good these are really good memories, really good memories. Now we got through the dip <laughs> so we're on the rise now so um twenty twelve was when we launched, yeah so we first, had two years first of, of march, march twenty twelve we had yeah. two years of research development, going through all the things we're going through, and making sure we had all our soldiers in a row with factories and people et cetera da, 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 da. and then um first of March and we had a video and photo shoot didn't we
2: yeah so uh, in February we did our first video and photo shoot we uh, Lewis Moody uh, one of Dodge's mates uh, came on board he left his night contract oh came God, on board do you remember that yeah.
0: <laughs> Lewis, Lewis was the England rugby
2: he was England the rugby cap- captain he was the yeah. captain
0: of England at the time in 2011 he took them to the World Cup in 2012 we launched uh, in the March before he we went to the World Cup I went to Pennyhill Park um, where England would train. And I said, mate, I've got this brand you're going to love. Take take a look at some of this. I'm going to come and visit you at Pennyhill. Went into his room and got out all the shirts. And he tried the shirts on straight away. He was like, oh, my God, mate, this is amazing. So we ended up doing a deal with Lewis that he'd come on board after the World Cup as ambassador. Um, little did we know that he had a year left on his Nike contract that he just left without telling them. And come on board as an ambassador with us and a shareholder.
2: Yeah, it was brilliant. And <laughs> and similarly as well, Pamela Cookie, he was the England was Netball yeah. England Netball captain at, at the time, a friend of mine from from yeah. being at Bath. Um, so we did a photo shoot with with those guys. Um That I, was that it, was
0: really powerful, wasn't it? It
2: was an amazing day. Obviously new, everything was new. Um luckily we all had an events background, so we knew how to make an event out of the photo shoot, so everyone had fun. There was really high energy throughout the day, yeah. a real buzz. Um, got some fantastic video- videographers on board, photographers. Um, that was actually an area that we didn't scrimp because we knew that the presentation of of how we launched was going to yeah. be really important. So, uh, yeah, had the photo shoot, and then it was a busy couple of weeks loading everything into the website to uh, to basically press right. go live.
0: And we went we went to new levels because on the website we were doing like ASOS do. You know when you get a, a, someone who who is modelling your hoodies or modeling your kit and they're walking down a catwalk we were doing that for every individual product we had yeah, it seemed like website. a good idea at the time yeah it <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time but that was graft yeah
2: yeah it was and it was that kind of attention to detail the other thing we did was we created a brand video hmm. which was actually really alien to particularly teamwear brands no one was doing it so when we we launched we we launched with this video um we had a couple of interesting phone calls that day i think people were <laughs> pretty taken back and well what they were worried weren't they, they were worried yeah.
0: competitors were worried they saw this new kid on the block Steph and I they were worried people were phoning up and it was just you could feel the panic stations going around going who are these new lot coming on the scene and shaking the whole industry up
1: I find it hilarious that it was it seemed like a revolutionary I- idea at the time to <laughs> have a video for the brand which now you, it'd be it'd be stupid not to uh, have a video for the brand uh, it, whose idea was that and how, how did that come about
2: It was actually Dodge's idea because um, from the Bournemouth Sevens Festival, he he learned that to be able to really showcase what something is, there's no better way than just allow someone to watch a video for for two minutes. Um, You know, people don't want to read lots of website jargon. And um, we just thought, you know, we could do a video here for two minutes, which, you know, has our ambassadors talking about the products, getting their opinions, um, showcases the products, gives it energy, gives it that excitement. Um, which is similar to the, the model with Bournemouth 7's and its videos um let's replicate that
0: And do you remember how how the first year went Well we we actually launched in that march but the but we the the, the proper I guess brand launch was at Bournemouth 7's festival which we owned So what a what a great you know the idea was we knew we got 400 teams there let's get those 400 teams spending a couple of grand each on kit mm. You know, and there's ten, fifteen, twenty players to a to a to a squad coming down. And we would we knew that we had something that they wanted. We knew that if they were coming to the Bournemouth Sevens uh festival, we'd give them a free VIP upgrade if they bought all our kit from us. So it just married together beautifully, mm. didn't it?
2: Yeah. And going back to the first of March, it was actually a really interesting day because it was very exciting. You know, we'd launched. Um, but I was only around about 23 at the time, so very still young in business, and um, the build-up had been so in- intense over that past couple of years. Getting to that point, and for me, that was almost the finish line in my mind. And I'd all or- I'd not even really considered that then. From the 1st of March, we'd get inquiries, we'd get phone calls, <laughs> and it was gonna it was gonna go again. And I, I do remember launching and being happy, but absolutely on my knees with exhaustion and uh what have I done yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean Dodge knew because he'd had the experience of launching Bournemouth Sevens Festival and that really is the start point when you Mm. launch because then that's when the interest comes in but I I didn't really have that that knowledge so I remember taking 10 minutes I went and sat in a dark storeroom just to myself and uh Woody who's uh who's Dodge's dad he uh he obviously spotted me going and he came in and we had a little a laugh and a hug and a and a bit of a cry and uh he gave me a bit of a boost and uh, reset me, really. Uh, so I always remember, you know, that from Woody Dodger's mm. dad, who's a, who's a fantastic man. Yeah, shout out nice. to
0: Woody again. Yeah, shout out to the old man. He's a legend. Well, anyone who knows him, knows him. is a legend. Can I just say something there? And it's just, it's, just, it's just bringing up all sorts of emotions right now because, you know, we launched this in 2010. It's now 2020. And uh, since, since, you know, we'll tell you a bit more of the journey, but there's a lot of stuff here that I'd forgotten about. And Mm -hmm. actually having this conversation, Steph, is really powerful and it feels really, really nice to know that we've done this together. Yeah. And your relentlessness, you know, when I first saw you when you come on board in 2010, your relentlessness is is, is second to none. And to get to the point where you were on that 1st of March of all the highs and lows and pressures we went through to just get to the launch in those Mm -hmm. two years, you know, hats off to you because you were like a dog with a slipper. You know, I'm relentless and um, maybe that rubbed off on you a bit as well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But as a team, we were a powerful team. Yeah. Well, I
2: think that was, you know, an advantage. We were a small team, but dynamic and Mm. uh, we we got shit done.
0: Yeah, we did.
1: So your brand's up and running now. You've relaunched it at Bournemouth 7s kind of thing to get, get new audience in there. Obviously, you're getting sales coming in, but how do you keep yourself relevant and get the name of Viper 10 out there? How does that happen?
0: That was that was the bit that for Steph and I, we knew we had a big database. We knew we had Bournemouth 7s. We knew we had 400 teams coming each year to the festival. We knew that we were in contact with every rugby and netball club around the UK. We knew that we could build on this database we knew lots of people in the industry, in the rugby and netball industry, you know. And um, and by getting Pamela Cookie on board, who was the England netball captain, and by getting Lewis Moody on board, who was the England rugby captain, gave us a huge step up. Yeah. So all of a sudden, brand association, people like, oh my God, you're seeing Lewis on you know, the front page of magazines wearing Viper 10. And Six Nations. And Six, oh, I forgot the Six Nations. You know, that's a great story. Yeah. In twenty in 2012, we had this, um obviously we're trying to get the brand out there and Lewis had retired from international rugby but they wanted him to be uh, the guy at halftime to come and spoke about the first half and at full time he'd come and speak about what happened over the game and we obviously, it was in his interest as well but we'd send him up a, a big black jacket with Viper 10 on the thing. But BBC said, you are allowed no branding when you're being filmed live on telly on BBC in front of 10 million people. So Lewis being Lewis, he was sort of had the jacket under his arm and they said, three, two, one, ready? We're going live. Boom, jacket on, full zip, massive Viper 10 on the chest, wasn't it? In front of 10 million people. So that was like, I think that was England, Wales. He did that and we're like, yes, this is unbelievable. And then the next game was England, France. Uh, Sorry, Next game was I don't know who it was. There was there was like three or three home games at Twickenham. Next one, the BBC said, Lewis, you cannot wear that jacket again. You're not allowed to. It's against BBC rules. No branding. Okay, no problem, no problem. Jacket under the arm. Ready? We're going live. Three, two, one, go. Lewis is there. Zoop! Jacket straight on again. And it was just brought it brought great exposure for us, didn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And a, a similar thing that kind of springs to mind is um we had secured uh, a cycling kit deal with the the British Heart Foundation. uh, One of the the members of the team, Emma Magson, at the time she had secured it, it was a a huge deal um, because they wanted to go with the British brand and and they liked the backstory. And uh, so we delivered all the kit into them and then uh, a couple of months pass and then uh, our phones start pinging. And uh Pipple Middleton <laughs> has, has done the British Heart Foundation cycling ride and she is plastered all over OK magazine. That's right. In a Viperten cycling jersey. So our phones are blowing up. Yeah. Um I always just think, What how amazing is that? Yeah. Like just free advertising. Yeah. Pipple Middleton, who was um obviously a household name because uh, being, you know, Kate's sister and... That uh, wedding dress. That wedding dress, game changer. It was, yeah, that was just, I remember that moment as well. That was pretty cool just seeing like... That
0: was cool, wasn't know, it? You know, buy,
2: pretend, and okay. But this, is,
0: this was a game for us. Steph and I realized that the since 2012 when we launched, we needed to refresh the brand up. Um, so we decided to bring on two more ambassadors um, and they were Jeeva Mentor who was the, the best, uh, the number one netballer in the world at the time, it was a good friend of Steph's and she was from Bournemouth. Um, and we had brought on Tom Varndell who was the top tri-scorer in the premiership. Yeah. Um, two wonderful ambassadors we brought on board and that's when we did the new video and photo shoot, wasn't it, in 2017?
2: Yeah, we uh, at the time we recognized as well that more and more people were starting to look at uh, websites on their mobile. So we wanted to rebuild, redesign the website, have it extremely mobile friendly and and it made sense to, at the same time, to, to refresh everything, refresh all of our photography and, and videos. So, uh, yeah, we set up a, a day, I think it was February around 2017, um, did another photo shoot, relaunched the brand, I think first of March. So yeah. like probably five or so years later from the actual launch, I think it just shows the power of, you know, building a brand never stops. Um, once you've launched on day dot, that's not it. It's almost like that's where the work really begins. And that's, you need to build your reputation, um, keep pushing out, you know, a, a amazing content because the rate people consume content these days is you you have to create it just to to, to keep fresh mm. um, and you look at brands you know like Gymshark um, fantastic sportswear company that you know I think have been valued at a billion dollars this year they have their own content creation studio in-house and they're just churning out stuff all the time um, so the people creating content now are, are going to be the ones that win
0: yeah and the beauty of the beauty of being able to sell a company is the whole 100% of shares no we had no investors, we had no outsourced money, we had nothing. It was our own money, and when someone's buying it, when there's no shareholders involved, it's a very clean deal. This wasn't war against other people and other com- companies and stuff. This was a game. We 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 st- we stood back and watched everyone fighting with each other, and stood back and we just cherry picking and going to clubs and doing big deals with clubs who wanted to work with us because they know our customer service product was good and it was a cool brand. You know, we weren't competing on price the whole time and because we knew the margins were, were tight, you know, and you don't want to be mucking around your margins just to get a deal, just to get your brand out there at a, a university or a, a private school or a rugby or a netball club, you know. So that's where we, that's where we differentiated ourselves, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, we, we weren't desperate mm. for the deal. Mm. If people didn't want to pay our prices, then we tried to adopt, I think, that that Apple mentality of, that's okay yeah no worries we'll yeah. we'll catch you in a in a year's time when you you come back because you don't you want a shirt that doesn't fall apart yeah so um yeah i think whole, we held really strong on our on our price points we and we didn't discount um and even in tenders if we did enter them we stayed true to ourselves um because uh, we, i mean we might chat a bit more about tenders but for me the particularly in the university market the whole tender process like is absolutely flawed um the only like really sensible tenders I've I've gone through are where they actually choose to to meet the brands ad, in advance and and work out who they can work with because business is about the people you work with, not who's written the best um policy, um, which, you know, can be pulled off the internet. Um, so I think universities, I would just say just need to shake out their process because yeah. they've got it all wrong. So yeah. when
1: did you start looking into that world and and exploring those markets and and actually tendering because obviously you'd avoided it up to a point when did you start kind of creeping into that world
0: well that that british heart foundation was probably our biggest deal i think it was like a hundred grand deal or Mm. something like that it was a big one of our biggest deals wasn't it but it was a very clean deal because you're dealing with the british heart foundation to do all their cycling kit You know, this is a whole new world to us. We weren't focused on cycling. You know, we were focused on making the best hoodies, the most comfiest hoodies, the best materials, stretchy netball dresses, great designs, netball dresses, great rugby kits, fantastic bespoke track suits that that the market hadn't really seen. So Mm -hmm. it then come to a point where we were getting approached by certain universities saying, could you come and tender? Is that right, Steph? Because yeah. you you were fronting this kind of that
2: Yeah, and we didn't we didn't really. It was mainly when Bournemouth University popped up and we, we knew a couple of the guys there because they would always come and work as part of the events team for Bournemouth Sevens and uh historically they'd been with um Cookery, which, you know, Dodge and I will say is is really the original multi sport. Yeah. Bespoke team I, actually got, I
0: actually got Phil Morris on the podcast Did a couple you? of weeks back. He had been coming, his podcast about cookery, and that's an interesting story. Yeah. But he was probably the original person. Yeah, yeah I you would know? Say so. and, But again, the business model was flawed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Due to the,
0: the, the, the cut and sew business model yeah. and from China.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Bournemouth University, you know, and we just thought, this is our hometown. We can, We can do something great with this. And it makes perfect sense because... Then we're selling kit to all of these students who are then in turn gonna be the customers of the festival. They're gonna be all the student ticket holders that come. So it had this really nice cycle to it. And uh, you know, sat down and thought, okay, if we're gonna do this, we're gonna blow everyone out of the water. Um, and the lengths that we went to in terms of the storyboarding about the Bournemouth University kit design and the, the gold flash across the chest, which represents, you know, the seven miles of golden beaches in Bournemouth and the, the gradients, which represent, you know, our blue skies on a lovely sunny day in, in Bournemouth and the waves, um, just taking in, a, you know, our surroundings and putting that into the kit designs and they were blown away, you know, the other brand, no one else had done that. They would basically gone, yeah, your colors are our navy and sky, we'll plonk that, we'll plonk that. Yeah. Um, and we just did the complete opposite and made them feel really mm. special. Mm. Um, And, you know, we're awarded the the deal Uh, that was amazing, Um, but we didn't want to stop there. We wanted this to be a flagship partnership that then would become, um, I guess, our case study for then moving on to other universities. So um, we set up this big kit day. It was a welcome weekend. The students came in, they got lots of, you know, little perks and and, and freebies, which they absolutely loved. Um, But we did a photo shoot for them, which um, they hadn't done before. So we got all the team captains. and the characters within the sports at Bournemouth University to come on board. And um, we just had this fantastic platform. Um, and before you know it, all the other universities were seeing all this, these photos being released, all these kit designs and the word of mouth, obviously, of the guys at Bournemouth University um, who were very well connected in the university sports sector, just saying, you, need, you guys need to speak to five, turn me off, fantastic. Mm. Um, and that I think was a turning point yeah. where we realized um, we, we can work with these universities, but we can do it on our terms in our way and create a really strong partnership, which is more than just we deliver kit once a year and then say, see ya, we'll see you next year. Mm. Um,
0: and these, these, were, these were big deals. These were yeah. 100 grand deals. So it was worth putting the energy in, you know, but we, because we enjoyed the business so much and we fell in love with the business, we wanted to make sure that we were doing it for the right reasons. And that's what's made us stand out, really.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there would still be tenders that would come through, and we would go, "It's not right for us. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll park that." And um, it, it almost got to a place where we wanted to perhaps focus on maybe one or two tenders a year, but we weren't going to do them all. Um, it, it wasn't about that. It wasn't about volume. It wasn't trying to get every deal. It was getting the deals that made sense, that would be profitable. And there was there was a meaning to it. There was a purpose for the for the, for the partnership. Mm.
0: And we're keeping the key to the key to any business is keeping your overheads low, creating a great product, which we did, and make sure it's profitable at the end of the year.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think I think um, when we look back at the journey, it was interesting because our marketing was so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the marketing went worldwide, and we started getting orders in from Australia and New Zealand, and Dubai, and Hong Kong, and obviously the UK, all the rugby and netball playing countries. And that was a, another big thing for us, wasn't it? Because all of a sudden in Australia, netball was huge. All of a sudden, these big netball clubs were coming to 5% wanting their kit. You know, that was a lovely feeling.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I think you need to, when, you're, when you have such strong marketing, you, you start to get a feel for the people that are responding to that and are starting to come in. And our business model was very much inbound. So from all of the marketing, we didn't have people, you know, driving around the country, knocking on people's doors or cold calling. We would just do the marketing and wait for them to to come to us. And I think that then kickstarts a much nicer feeling with an account management relationship than if you're handing someone saying, do you want to change kit supplier? Um, So yeah, I think people coming to us just, it it gave it a nice feel from the outset. Mm.
0: Quite ballsy though, relying on people to come to you. Yeah, absolutely. It was ballsy, but that's what we like. That's what we've done in many businesses and we like to shake up the market. And that's what we did. We took a risk. Um, There was no game plan, you know, and we just, we, we believed in our gut feeling. Because we'd done so much homework and we saw so many weaknesses in competitors and that's what any entrepreneur out there or anyone who's starting up a business, that's what the way forward is.
1: I've got to say, just going cover, covering the uh, Bournemouth University deal again just slightly, what an amazing feeling it was when we started to see uh, I I was only minimally involved in Viper Ten at the time um, but to see Viper Ten just plastered everywhere across the town uh, mm. absolutely everywhere you go in supermarkets there were people hung over wearing Viper Ten hoodies yeah. uh, you'd see people at the gym just yeah. everywhere you went the beach everywhere That's Viper right. Ten and it's still like that now yeah. it, it's it's getting absolutely ubiquitous around here yeah. when it comes to sportswear it was crazy wasn't it yeah
2: yeah it was it was amazing and I think they really liked that it was a local brand you know we would have students coming into the office to be able to try on on their kit. Um, in you know, for them that was great because then they get to see the offices of 510 and Bournemouth Sevens. So it had a really nice um local partnership feel to it, and that's I think that made that particular deal just a bit more special and just literally being you know five minutes down the road from the uni.
0: It was perfect, and you know what, like you said a minute ago, Steph, is that all the other universities saw that. Yeah. They saw the levels of design. They saw the levels of uh, account management. And they wanted a piece of it, yeah. Because it got to a point where there was ten other brands tendering for I don't know Loughborough University or Durham University or Oxford or Cambridge, and it all just come down to the how much. Yeah, and that's really sad. Yeah, it's really really sad because you can get the cheapest deal you want. Maybe that's a hundred grand deal or two hundred grand deal with Loughborough University. It could be the. Cheapest deal out of the lot, but you might not get the customer service. You, the kit might be late. There's all these factors that can get in the way, rather than the actual relationship.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And like I said earlier, I think the the university tendering process, to an extent, is is just really flawed. And the most uh, the best tenders I've been involved in have been where they just want to meet the brand to start or get the brand in front of the students, and the the kind of paperwork, if you like, comes last mm. um, because you know, showcasing how you are as a person or how you engage with their students. Mm. Um, well, that's going to be a clear sign of how you're probably going to run the partnership. Mm. Um, so I, I hope more unis start to start to change it because it still is quite quite flawed and it, uh, is. Um, it, it just ends up wasting a lot of people's yeah. time. You know, the universities don't like reading through everything, yeah. so, so why do it? Give
0: an example, because I didn't really, uh, that wasn't really my bag, but when you were doing a tender, how many pages was a tender?
2: You might end up with, you know, 50 or 60 pages you know because they want to see a design for every single sport and when you've got sports from archery through to volleyball to to golf you know every sport wants to see what their kit's going to look like um, then you'll have lots of other questions you know about you know policy statements oh my god pricing <laughs> Painful. um painful yeah it's just it's like my uh, worst nightmare though. yeah it really is isn't it? <laughs> that's why you didn't do them <laughs> reading pages and
0: pages no thank you can you put it on one line for <laughs> yeah, me give me some bullet points please um but yeah it was interesting as well because we everyone loves hoodies mm. and we created the best hoodies in the marketplace
2: yeah absolutely and um we came up with the idea for an eye hoodie. Oh my god, um, the eye hoodie! And it was around the time Apple had, I think, were La- just launching their right. iPhones, yeah. um, and they were a bit smaller at the time. I don't think you could have twenty twelve. Yeah, yeah. You, could, you don't think you could do it quite so much now, but. Um, yeah, created like this fantastic eye pocket on the arm and with a loop for your headphones. Cause obviously they That's they were right. they weren't wireless then. Um so teams could eat you know, you could go out for a run in this hoodie and have your headphones on, you could be on the team bus, yeah. you know, with with your iPhone in 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 your pocket on your arm and yeah. you know, wired in on your headphones. And uh that was good that was so good for us because it was our hero product. So when we had that product and and it wasn't cheap, mm-hmm. but how much was it back in the day? I think we 50? Had, yeah, we had it at about 50, 60 pounds, mm-hmm. but Teams wanted it too. So then, because we had this hero product, which you know, all of our marketing was all about this eye hoodie. We had video, you know, videos yeah. as, as as Dodge mentioned earlier, like showing all the details and the craftsmanship. Um, you know, because it's quite typical for teamwear that, that the hoodies, a lot of brands, they're crap. Yeah. Um, you know, cheap material. Wash them a few times, and they're feeling pretty rough mm. and stuff. So we made sure we had, you know, brushed cotton fleece. Um, you know, quality. We we didn't go to the factories where we just get the cheapest price. It was always about the best quality product.
0: Yeah.
1: I've still got a load of uh Viper 10 hoodies in my wardrobe. I think I must have about like 8 or 8 or 9 or something like
0: that. <laughs> Are you nicking them out the uh No, I'd get all the all, all the end of line stuff because uh, no, no one else is in my size. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Triple X. Triple X. a big day. Yeah,
2: exactly. The only trouble about having too many uh Viper 10 hoodies is because the fabric is so thick and warm like they take up a lot of wardrobe they do. Space. The space. They do, <laughs> so, don't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. They do. Uh, So we've talked about a very high high, which is the the Bournemouth University deals. What were the lowest lows in the the whole Viper 10 journey? We've probably got different lows.
0: Um, I think the lowest for me, I wouldn't even say it was a low because I had the bit between my teeth. It was finding out this factory in China. Who is it?
1: So early doors. Early Uh,
0: doors for me. and I couldn't believe that they'd lied. The two lads had lied and we found that out. And that was probably the low, but quite enjoyed it as well. You know, I was like a, a, a dog with a bone. You know, it's quite random for in China, find everyday China company, Chinese factories, factory trying to find that. That's probably my, my biggest low. And I think Steph, I know, I know Steph's biggest low.
2: Yeah, I think something that I don't think many people realize quite so much about, particularly teamware industry is it's relentless. You know, you are on a, a hamster wheel particularly during those summer months because it's a seasonal business you know everyone everyone getting kit for the start of the season and i remember um a particular incident quite clearly and uh a uh, rugby club—they needed their kit, you know, by five o'clock Friday because their first game of the season was was on a Saturday. It was around September time, um, so the courier, you know, out for delivery on Friday. I'm thinking, great, that's all under control. I had some annual leave booked to go to Bestival, which is a fest- music festival on the Isle of Wight. So um, I'm I'm on the ferry, you know, on the way to the Isle of Wight. Terrible signal. Um, and this customer, he has popped out and the courier has tried to deliver whilst he's popped out, mm-hmm. of course, sods law. Um, so he's been left with a delivery note saying, we'll try again on Monday. Um, <laughs> he obviously goes absolutely nuts, even though he chose to, to to pop out and is, you know, sending me all sorts of messages saying, you need to get this sorted. Etcetera, etc cetera. So it's very
0: polite of you to say you just need to get. It sorted.
2: <laughs> yeah, they weren't the words he used. Um, so anyway, I'm I'm trying to get this sorted. I managed to get hold of a of a courier and the and basically get it rerouted so it will be delivered to him. You know, the next day. But you can't really relax until he's got the kit in his hands. And you know, not all couriers are, are reliable. So I'm I'm at a festival on a, on the Saturday morning trying to just wait for this, you know, this kit delivery update. He is pestering me the whole time. Um I'm hungover because I'm at a festival. (laughs) I'm in a tent. It's boiling hot. Um and I want
0: to get back on it.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying I'm trying to put my glitter (laughs) glitter on my face. Um and he's pestering me. And I just I had a moment and I just thought, what what am I doing? Like this is absolutely bonkers. Um anyway the the kit um gets delivered to him, you know then I'm the hero um and uh yeah, I think I went and found the festival bar pretty quickly after that <laughs> but, made up for it. but these are lots of moments that go on behind the scenes in in brands like Viper pretend that the customers just aren't even aware of um there's a lot of logistical you know organization um. And it just so happened that you know he popped to the to the post box, mm-hmm. and that was when the the kit was going to get delivered. So it got sorted, but it was a stressful twenty four hours. But,
0: but you know that's interesting. What year was that? Sixteen? Yeah, around twenty sixteen. That just goes to show the level of customer service Steph took on her shoulders for for eight whole years. It was she took the responsibility. It was on her shoulders to make things work, and that's why the business became so successful.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that the kind of ethos amongst you know. The, the whole team, you know, nothing was ever a problem. We we, we solved problems um, and if if there were problems and uh, I think having that tight tight team was really important. Yeah. It's also one of the benefits of not having salespeople on the roads because um, you, you kind of have this really tight community. You have each other's back and you can see when someone is, you know, under pressure in the office and you just go and help them like mm. in, in any team scenario. But mm. you don't see that when you've got people, you know, driving around in cars up and down the, the country.
1: Now, obviously, uh, neither of you are now involved in Viper 10. Mm -hmm. How did did
0: that come about? I got a phone call one night, and it was a Sunday night about nine o'clock. And I said to my missus, I said to Fleur, um, I got to bed, knackered, hungover." So I was walking up (laughs) the stairs. There's a theme here with you two. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was walking upstairs and the phone went, I saw a a mobile number come up. And I thought, not now, Sunday night. You know, I think we've been out... Uh, a friend's dinner party the night before I was like not now and I let it, for some reason I let it ring like seven times I don't know how many rings it does till it goes off but I let it ring and ring and ring and I've just thought for one while I was walking upstairs so just answer it answer it hello is that uh, Roger Woodall I've been watching Viper 10 for the past three years I'd like to buy you Chris is that you I thought it was my best mate taking the mickey I went Chris is that you he said no this is da 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 I said you've really thrown me here buddy please drop me an email here's my email address drop me an email so I can see your footer I can see your website and I can see a bit more about you. First thing, woke up the next morning, eight o'clock in the morning, bang, email, long email, bullet pointed because I said, whack it all in bullet points. And um, he was the real deal. So we had conversations back and forth, back and forth. And um, yeah, we agreed on a deal that we're both happy with. I said to them, we're not here. We don't want to sell it. We're happy as we are. It really works well. It complements Bournemouth 7s. It, it beats the industry mold because... We had the summer business. None of our competitors had the summer business. We had the Bournemouth 7s, which was our summer business because most businesses do nothing across the summer. So he, he identified that and he knew that he could pick our brand up and put it into his company, into their company. It's a big sports company which they own. Um, and yeah, the deal was done. We shook hands and eight months of lawyers and accountants back and forth and the deal was done. Did it feel a little bit like your only child is going off to uni?
2: Yeah, I think I probably spent, because the the, the, the deal took, you know, fairly eight months or so to happen and I, I knew it was going to go through. So I actually spent those eight months probably actively uncoupling mm. um, and just starting to dis- detach myself because I knew at the moment it was sold. Um, we wouldn't be the decision makers anymore and... um it would be in a, a a different environment and I was gonna have to let go of control. You know, I'm a control freak, so I, I actually had to spend quite a lot of time just working <laughs> on <laughs> how I was going to feel seeing someone do stuff which I might not necessarily agree with 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 my brand.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um so that 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 was an interesting experience. Um a lot of emotions I think that anyone would go through, you know, selling selling something they built from scratch. Um, it, yeah, I'd say the whole sales process, it's just, it's a fascinating process yeah. to go through selling a, a company. And, uh, you know, for a lot of people, I don't know how you feel, Dodge, for a lot of people, that's kind of the end goal, but it's all sorts of different emotions come up and you you do at that moment realize that that isn't the high, the high is all the building that went on in in probably like the early years yeah. and the creating of, of the brand. Um, and that part for me was probably just that, that natural sort of, End to, to that, that mm. chapter, you know, 10 years of, of creating Viper 10 and building it. And it was just sort of the the, the next natural thing that, that happened. We weren't expecting it, but it, mm. uh, it you but know. That's the best way. You,
0: you, you, I hear a lot of businesses and uh, businesses, young entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who I mentor are all talking about the exit game. Don't have an exit game. Enjoy the journey because it's a lot more fun than destination. That's what I can say. Mm. Enjoy creating. Enjoy um, shaking up businesses. Um but stop talking about selling because there's so many friends of mine are constantly saying, oh, I'm not gonna sell the business in five years. You don't know that. Or I've been made an offer yesterday and it's this. I said, offers are great, but everyone makes offers because they wanna know more about your business. <laughs> They're gonna make you an offer so they can delve a bit more into your business and then 99.9% don't buy your business. So just carry on doing what you're doing, making sure you've got great products, making sure you've got great marketing, make sure you've got great sales, and make sure you've got a great brand. You know, and that is the key to business. And then someone will knock on your door one day and might want to buy you. It's your decision, you're in the driving seat then to say, I fancy selling or I don't fancy selling. We looked at each other and it was an offer we couldn't refuse, so we sold it. And going back to your emotions there, the emotion of agreeing a deal to getting over the line with the lawyers and the accountants and the due diligence, that's an emotional ride. Yeah. Because that's very new. I've never sold a company before. I'm very new to that. Steph's very new to that. I really enjoyed it because I learned so much. And things can change very quickly on that person might wake up in a bad mood and come back to you with a point that he wants tweaked in the contract. You might wake up in a bad mood and go, well, I'm not tweaking that, that point in the contract. And then a lot of business can break down on a sale. But we kept the relationship very strong between us and the acquirers. There's one thing they did do, in fact, I do remember, 'Cause part of the deal was I said, you know, this if you if you want the brand that badly, I is, I want a hundred percent upfront, no earnout. So I wasn't attached to the business moving forwards. And they agreed and then I think it was like six weeks before we we're about to sign the deal, they went, Okay, well we've changed, we wanna make it we'll pay you ten percent up front and we'll pay you ninety percent over three years And I was like, Nut. Nah, there's no way that's happening. It's hundred percent upfront. I was being ballsy at the time because this was going ahead and I was happy with the, the with the price. We were happy with the price. And I said, it's 100% up front or nothing. And he come back straight away. Okay, 100% up front. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a lesson there is, you know, stand, stand your ground. Um, and the deal was done. I remember, being in a, I remember being in the accountants and it was over a loudspeaker. There was mm-hmm. Steph and my, my, Fleur, my wife and Steph and uh, our lawyer uh, on a loudspeaker with their lawyer. And we signed at exactly the same time, wasn't yeah. it? Um, and the deal was done and the money got put into our lawyer's account and we went and drunk some bottles of champagne. <laughs> There's that <laughs> theme again. It's <laughs> <laughs> that theme again, yeah. But you've got to enjoy, you've got to enjoy, you know, in business you've got to enjoy the small wins. The small wins are really important. There's a lot of people who forget the small wins in business. It's easy to think about the big win, the big deal. But the small wins, lots of small wins make up a great big deal, you know.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Mm. It's all about it's it's a long old journey building mm. a business and building a brand, and um, the small wins are so important. Also for the for the team as well in terms of just that culture and that kind of feel good feeling, and uh, you know celebrate, have fun, and next morning wake up, go again.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I like about this business, it was purely digital business. We shook up the market. We created this new digital business, and this is the future. The digital businesses are the future. Make sure they're recession proof the moment we're going through a global recession i went through in one in 2008 make sure your business is recession proof and the way to do that these days is get it all online and digital no one can take that away from you
1: when you look back uh both of you when you look back at the time at viper 10 what do you feel proud proud
2: yeah very yeah very proud um yeah i think that's probably the overriding feeling for me is just you know be able to look back and go look what we created from not having a scooby-doo to create something that was profitable that shook up the market had a positive impact and then somebody you know wanted to wanted to buy that that, when you kind of encapsulate the whole sort of journey uh like that for me yeah i think proud proud is probably the overriding feeling yeah I
0: i would agree a lot of pride in in what we did and also leaving a legacy You know, anyone who wore our kit and there was hundreds of thousands of people wearing our kit, knowing that they put it on and they felt really good. And that achievement is, you know, the finances are great. And and when you sell a company, it's all wonderful and great. But actually to look back and see what we achieved in that period. Mm -hmm. And we built a lovely little team around us and, and yeah, pride.
1: Well, Dodge, Steph, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating as always, Dodge. But Steph, thank you very much for coming in and joining us. Thank you and uh, well, no doubt we'll probably get you back on another time to chat about more drinking and stuff so uh. <laughs> <laughs> and
2: tell some uh, some funny stories about Dodge <laughs> yeah this.
0: <laughs> just before we go here on a couple of last words and Steph come on board as a student um, and she's with me 10 years and I have to say she's the most talented designer I've ever come across and she's turned herself into one of the best business women I've ever come across
1: Here, hear uh, thank you very much guys and uh, no doubt like I said we'll, we'll speak soon
0: thanks Dan lovely cheers Dan I've enjoyed that thank you cheers mate yeah.